and it is uh, a delight to be able to come and preach this morning. So we're going to be uh, starting a series the next four weeks. We're going to be talking about revival. Ooh, I love that word, revival. So, yeah, revive us again, Lord. And actually, I, I thought we'd turn our attention to the screen. We're, we're just going to watch the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl, and that's going to be all I need to say. No, I, I had to say something about the Patriots. Let's go. Number five, Nick Assembly and I were chatting about it last night. It was like our hearts were, I mean, it was, it was one of the worst games to watch ever, one of the best games to watch ever. So, loved it. But hey, we're going to be talking about revival these next four weeks. And uh, Mark, you know, he approached me like a month ago or two, two months ago. He's like, hey, what do you think about teaching on revival? And I had th- this kind of emotions that came up inside of me. Uh, I, was, I was sort of torn. First, I was... You know, I, I don't know about you, but some of the, the things that I think about when I think of the word revival, I, maybe it's like my Boston skepticism, but I'm, I'm kind of like, I don't, you know, I, I, I just, that seems like hype to me. When we, when we preach on revival, I think of revivalist preachers that like, you know, come up here and super hyped and we got to respond in crazy ways. And so part of me is like, I'm not really like that, you know, I, so I didn't really want to do it. But the, the other part of me said, there's nothing more than I want in my own personal life. And when I think about our church, and when I think about our city, there's, there's almost nothing more than I want than to be revived, right? To, to see revival happen. So prayed about it, and the Lord said, go for it. So I am. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. So I'll be preaching these next two weeks. And then Dan Snape, who is the worship pastor at the river, will be coming and finishing the series the last two weeks. So that'll be fun. But hey, two pictures of revival. I thought, I, I thought I'd just start with two illustrations of what I think a revival looks like. Because first, I think revival is, is a twofold thing. One is it's revival inside the church, which is what we're going to be addressing in these next four weeks. And then I think there's revival outside the church, amongst the lost, amongst the unsaved. But we're going to focus these next four weeks on inside the church. So I, I just want to show you a picture of a room. All right, so I bought a house a couple months ago. This is my house in Waltham. This is my living room. And I just want to give you a little bit of an uh, understanding of what this house looked like when we walked in. So as you can see, cool stripes. It's like it was cool sometime. It's not cool now. So we had to get rid of those stripes. You see this carpet. It's like you, you walk into the room and, and it was like... You were hit in the face with the smell of urine. It was, it was gross. It must have been there for years and years and years. The, the wall, the ceilings were totally cracked and like bowing in. And so this was kind of like the entire house. And so, next picture please. Over a couple months, put a lot of hard work in. Actually, many of you guys came and helped us paint. We got to turn it. This isn't even the finished product, but we got to turn it into... What I would say is a very livable, beautiful house. We painted the walls. We fixed the ceilings. One of the best things ever, I pulled up the carpet and I saw this gorgeous hardwood. That's what I saw underneath. Amazing. And so what I see that kind of inside the church revival is, is really this picture of this renovation, right? This house had a great structure. There wasn't any major things, but we needed new paint. We needed new ceilings. We needed, I, I gutted the bathroom. It needed a facelift. And so I think that's a picture of sometimes in the church, we need to be revived. We need to have someone come in and do a little housework, do a little cleaning work, right? Over time, our spiritual lives, unfortunately, 
can, you know, one, one term is backslide, one term is just kind of drift away from the Lord. But like it says in Revelation, uh, when Jesus is talking to the church in Ephesus, return to my first love, right? So it's this idea, this renovation. So that's one picture of revival, and that's mainly what we're going to be talking about. But I want to give another illustration about what I think revival is, because I, ha- I have to mention revival of, of the lost. And so I'm, I'm going to actually tell you a story about how I met Leslie. Leslie was like, do not tell the story, but I am disobeying by telling this story about when I first fell in love with Leslie. So it was, uh, Leslie and I were both living overseas. I was living in Morocco. She was living in Indonesia. We were overseas with church plants that were missionaries overseas. And we came back for the summer. We, uh, one summer, we just happened to come back at the same time. And we were invited to a wedding last minute. How many of you guys remember Maggie Edmonds and Greg Hood's wedding? A bunch of us were here, yeah. So we had, Maggie Hood, Edmonds was, was a, you know, came to CFCF for years. Greg Hood's a good friend of mine. So we got invited to come to this wedding. And I remember I had heard about this girl named Leslie because at the time we were the only two single missionaries overseas. So I'd, I just heard about her, but I'd never actually met her. And I remember vividly, I was sitting at a table talking with a bunch of guys. And I'm just going to bring you into this moment. It was special. <laughs> I looked up. And I swear, time stopped. Everybody, there, I didn't see anything else in the room. All I saw was this beautiful woman walking towards me. And my chest, I was like, do, 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 do. Yeah, I mean, if you if you've had that experience, you know what I'm talking about. It's crazy. And my love life in a second was revived. It was just boom. I was like in love with this girl. I'd never talked to her. And so she walks by and I'm like, Phil, what do I say? What do I say? What do I say? I'm like, can I talk to you later? And, and she like kind of looks at me weird and is like, sure. And, and keeps walking. She didn't know who I was. And so I was like, dang it. You know, I've been on the mission field. I forget the good pickup lines or whatever. But so anyway, I, I go and talk to her later. And we have this amazing conversation. You know, 20 minutes. I, I get her email address. And, and just a little tip. If you ever want to date a missionary, get on their prayer list first. They'll, get, you'll, they'll give you their email in a second. Uh, so that's, that's what started our, our conversation over, and then it's on Skype, and then it turned into the marriage we have. But why do I say that story? I get excited about this idea that there are literally people that have heard about the name of Jesus. or heard. How many of you guys have talked to people, and they're like, oh, I'm, I know Jesus. No, no, you know, I've heard of him, or yeah, I've read about him. I mean, I, I think many of us have, maybe friends, coworkers, but it's until they, like, and you're, you're, sometimes I'm just like, no, you know, you have to get to know who Jesus is. And, and I promise you, you're going to fall in love. You know, and, and that's what happened in my life. And that's what I'm believing is what a picture of revival for the lost is. They've heard about this man, Jesus. But when they encounter him, it's like, yes, this is what I want. And they, they're, it's, for, for, it's over. You know what I mean? It's, it's all about Jesus for the rest of their lives. That's what I believe another picture of revival is. That's of the lost. And, and I pray for that. I really do. I pray that that would happen in our city. I believe for it. On the campus of BC, amongst young adults in Brighton, I'm believing that this is going to happen. But here's the thing. I believe that it has to start with us first. Before we start praying for, you know, revival of all these other lost people of, of the world, come on, bring revival. I, th- I just think God's continually like, what about reviving yourself? What about bringing a revival to your own heart? And so that's what we're going to talk about today in these next four weeks is revival inside you personally and inside the church. 
So what is revival? Again, twofold. It's the body of Christ being revived, and it's the lost falling in love with Jesus. You know, Mark uh, said, he's, he talks about this acceleration. Mark says that revival is like, uh, has, has anybody driven a Tesla car? So t- supposedly they have one of the greatest accelerators, like of any other car, they have one of the greatest accelerations. You, you jam that gas and you just press back into the seat. And Mark's talking about revival is like you just get, wow, with the presence of God. That leads to this, this refinement, this sanctification, this, this, uh, this acceleration in, in your love for Him, right? That's, uh, just picture that. Just get in the seat and just, Thank you, Lord. You know, it's this revival, this acceleration of sanctification of of God doing great things amongst us. So that's what revival is. When do we need it? Uh, I was just praying, you know, specifically for our kind I was like, when do we as CFCF need it? You know, I know many of you. I've, I've developed friendships with a lot of you. I know you guys. I know many of you very well. And I was just praying, Lord, what do we need revival? And I just felt like the Lord was saying... You know, it's, it's when, whenever this, whenever faith group, whenever kind of, uh, you know, we talk a lot about loving Jesus and spending time with Jesus, whenever that becomes this kind of religious obligation, right? When, when, it, when instead of it being about you, you really are, you want to spend time with him, you want to come to church and fellowship, whenever you, you know, you want to go to, to faith group to, to interact with other believers, when, when that becomes this like, drudgery. I'm like, I need revival. We need revival. For me personally, I was just talking with Mark before the service. You know, it's an interesting thing when you come up in front and preach. It's actually a very vulnerable position to be in if you've never done, you know, public speaking before. But I was just saying, Mark, it's, you know, it's, we just, we kind of do our worship and then we have someone come and talk and then we respond. And then what, what happens? Does, does anything really happen in the midst of us? Or just my own personal conviction about my own life is I, the way I view church. And I'm saying, God, I need to be revived. I need to, I need to revive my view of this, of how powerful this actually is. So that's when we need it. What else do we need it? We need it when, when the church begins to uh, acculturate to societal norms. So when things in society... When kind of the, the, the viewpoints, perspectives of what's going on in kind of our world be, starts to invade church culture or the Christian culture, we need to be revived. We instead, the church, I hope, can actually impact our culture and our society and change the culture that way instead of us being changed. When else do we need revival? I think it's when the church stops leading the way in terms of justice issues. You know, I think of the, the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the, the elderly, the, the young, the, the orphans, widows. You know, God's heart for justice. When, if we are not leading the way in justice issues, who's going to lead the way? We need to be revived. And then finally, when do we need to see revival? When we, when we stop seeing salvations. You know, and this is... Uh, this is, this is a little bit heavy on my heart. I'm like, I've been in Boston for three years. And uh, sa- the prayer of salvation for people to come to know Jesus has been a prayer of mine since being here. And I have not, unfortunately, seen anybody come to faith since I've been in Boston. And, I, and 
part of me is really grieved by that. Part of me re- recognizes it's not just me. You know what I mean? This is a God thing. But I'm like, God, I want to see people come to salvation. Can you revive me first? If, that, if I have to do anything, if I have to be revived for that to happen, please, Lord, revive me. Right? So we need revival. We need it in a bad way. And, it, and it's not one of these things that we, uh, you, you go through revival once and then you're good for life. You know what I mean? Revival is this, is this thing that happens. It, it's kind of, we need it over and over and over again. We need to be revived in our walk with the Lord. So what we're going to be studying, so that's, that's my kind of like little intro about the series. We're going to be studying the book of 2 Chronicles these next four weeks. And I'm going to give you a little, little bit of a, a glimpse into what, why 2 Chronicles, and then we're going to jump into looking at King Josiah's life. So why 2 Chronicles? 2 Chronicles is, is a historical book. It's talking about Israel in the land of Canaan. It's talking specifically about the kings of Judah. And the beginning of 2 Chronicles is the kind of the end of David's life. Then Solomon, his son, becomes king. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, it's this, uh, this, the dedication of the temple is what it's called. And, and it's, Solomon just builds this amazing, beautiful temple to the Lord. And then has this crazy sacrifice. 122,000 sheeps and goats, 22,000 head of cattle are sacrificed on this one day. In, in honor of the Lord. And so it's this like, at this time, all of Israel is around the temple like, yes, God, we love you. Okay, so it's this huge, you know, if you, if you want to call it a revival service, go for it. That's what it was. Maybe that's what it was. But then later on, a couple, you know, I don't know if it's days, weeks, years, God visits Solomon in the night, it says. This is the beginning of chapter 7. And he says this. I, I'm, I'm going to, this isn't how he would have said it, but. Hey, you know, it's pretty cool that you guys dedicate yourself to me. Awesome. But I know the heart of people, and I know you're going to turn away from me. This is God speaking to Solomon. I know you guys are going to turn away. And when you guys turn away, I'm going to send plagues, and I'm going to actually inflict your cattle with diseases, and and your crops aren't going to work, and and enemies are going to come in and take over. There's, There's a judgment that God says to Solomon at the time. That's pretty heavy. But then this key verse comes. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 14. It says, so it's, it says, your judgment is going to come. And then he says, but if my people who are called by my name will, gives four things, will humble themselves, will seek my face, will pray, and will turn from their evil ways, I will hear them, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Let me say that one more time. If my people who are called by my name, and let me, get, let me just say this to you, you guys are called by the name of God. You guys are people of God. If you're called by my name, if my people will humble themselves, seek my face, pray, and repent, then I will hear them, forgive them, and heal their land. And so God lays out these four conditions for revival. And and the chronicler then uses in an amazing kind of literary way, he looks at the rest of the kings of Judah, and and he picks out these four kings and he emphasized, most of the book is emphasizing these four kings. And actually, each of these four kings relates to one of these pieces. Humility, prayer, repentance, and seeking this face. So King Josiah, which is what we're going to look at today, brought about revival in Israel because he humbled himself. King Asa, which is we're going to talk about next week, brought about revival in Israel because he sought the face of the Lord. King Jehoshaphat, which Dan Snape will be teaching on, 
prayed, and that was the key to his revival. And then King Hezekiah, he repented, and that was the key to his revival. So the chronicler, in an amazing way, says these are the four things that's going to bring about revival. And so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how do we, what, what are the conditions for us as a people to see and bring about revival in our midst? You guys excited about that? That sounds good, right? So let's look at Second Chronicles, and we're going to look at specifically chapter 34. It should be up on the screen. We're going to look at the King Josiah's life. So the context for King Josiah is that he had a grandfather and a father who said were, were evil. They followed the ways of, uh, they were evil kings. King Manasseh was his grandfather, lived for 55 years. And the kind of defining moment of Manasseh's life was that he sacrificed his children in the arms of Molech. It's just like disgusting line. And now that I'm a father, I realize how, how even more like crazy that would be. But that's the extent of idolatry that had happened in Israel. Then his father, Ammon, comes along. He only lives for two years because he's assassinated. But he said he followed in the ways of his grandfather, Manasseh. And then King Josiah comes along. So I'm going to read the first chunk here. This is Second Chronicles chapter 34, verses 1 through 11. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down, He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, he purified, to purify the land in the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azali, and Massieh, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Johaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. They went to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the temple of God, which the Levites, who were the gatekeepers, had collected from the people of Manasseh, Ephraim, and the entire remnant of Israel, and from all the people of Judah and Benjamin and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then they entrusted it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the Lord's temple. These men paid the workers who repaired and restored the temple. They also gave money to the carpenters and builders to purchase dressed stone and timber for joists and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. I'll do a quick little recap of that. I know that was a lot. So again, this wicked culture, these wicked kings had taken over Israel. And now King Josiah, eight years old, becomes king. And it says that at the age of 16, he began to seek God. At the age of 20, he begins to purge the land. I love that word, purge. Can we all say that real quick? Purge. It's a powerful word. 
He purged the land of all these idols. And then at 26, it says that he begins to repair the temple that was totally in disrepair. What I think is amazing, and, and you've got to pause to really, really bring this in. Imagine the cultural pressure that Josiah felt to continue in the ways of his grandfather and father. Right? For two generations, 57-ish years, the culture had been pressing towards all these other eyes. And then this kid at 20 years old, this is you guys' age, 20 years old, totally turns against what culture has told them to do, has told him to do and says, we're going to get rid of all this stuff and we're going to seek the Lord. That's a powerful, powerful attitude. I think, I mean, I, I just was thinking, as we were worshiping, I was like, man, BC students, the culture of BC, what, what's being promoted and pushed there? At 20 years old, what, what, can you imagine standing up against kind of the cultural idols of whatever is at BC. That's, I just was thinking for you guys. Man, you guys are like Josiah. You guys are going to be like Josiah in BC. But what is, what is the reason for his ability to do this? What, how, how does he actually, how is he able to have this attitude to purge? And, and I, I want to submit to us that the theme of Second Chronicles 34 and what the Chronicles is trying to emphasize is, is Josiah's humility. I think we see it throughout this entire chapter. And so I believe that because of the humility that Josiah had in him from a young age, he was able to identify the idols in his nation. And he, through, because of that humility, was able to have the courage to say, no more to those idols, only God will take the place that, of the preeminent spot in our lives. One of my favorite books is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he has that phenomenal chapter talking about pride. And so I see pride as the antithesis, the opposite of humility. And C.S. Lewis talks about how pride is actually the greatest sin that we can fall into. Because it is the sin of the devil. It's the sin of Satan. You see, Satan, who was once an angel named Lucifer, was in heaven with God. And he saw God. God was the creator. And and Lucifer goes, hey, I want to be, why can't I have the kind of focus like God. Why can't I be like God? And of course, God is like, no, this is not how this works. And so he banishes Lucifer from heaven. And he comes and he comes down to earth and now he's ruling and reigning here. And Satan now is the, like the greatest thing that he likes to do is he's trying to inflict us all with this nasty pride in our lives. And what I think pride, again, we see it in the Garden of Eden. We see it with Adam and Eve, the thing he says is he goes, hey, eat that tree. If you, if you eat that fruit, you will be like God. So Satan is continually trying to be like God or to convince us as humans to elevate ourselves or other things to the place that only God should have in our lives. And so humility is the exact opposite of this. Right? Humility is this position of saying, of being able to identify Pride, being able to identify these places that we start elevating ourselves or idols and saying, no, only God can have this place. And so what I want to say is, and what I see from Josiah's life is, I think he identified those places where they were placing all these other things instead of the true God in the worship of Israel. He said, we got to purge that. we got to get rid of these things. Only God can hold that place. I think that's, that's, a, that's a characteristic or that's a trait of humility in someone's life. 
I think he must have been shocked at the people. I just think of him and the way that he was, must have been abhorred at the sins. Abhorred that they actually were worshiping someone else other than the true God. And that's what led him to, to purge these things. So how does this apply to us? How can we be like that? I think that first we have to realize that kind of the, the oldest trick in Satan's book is that he's trying to get us to elevate ourselves. He's trying to get us to be like God. He's trying to get us to elevate some other thing in the place that only God should have in our lives. And so we just need to identify that, that that's the, that's the trick of Satan. That's thing. Secondly, you know, before we go and, and kind of condemn these Israelites for what they did, for the idolatry that they lived in, I, I think we need to recognize actually that that's, this is a pervasive problem in all of humankind, isn't it? Pride. Idolatry. Placing other things instead of God into that, into that top spot in our life. I think it's pervasive. I think it's amongst us. I think we, we see this is a, the constant problem that we have. And so humility is us asking, God, is there anything, anything in my life that has taken your place? Is there any idol that I've placed there? Is there anything in, my, in myself that I have placed above you? I, I think as we were singing, holy, 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 what a powerful hymn, right? It talks about the elders casting down their crowns around the, the glass you see in, in worship of Jesus. That is the exact picture of humility that I was like, Praise the Lord you guys chose that song. Casting down our crowns. It's just saying, it, we are here to worship you. A verse that I often think of, I think of humility, as I, I, it's from both James and 1 Peter. And, and they say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I quote that to myself all the time. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I do not want to be in opposition to God. I do not want God to oppose me, right? I want to receive more and more of his grace. Can we be, can we embody, can we, can we be the humility that Josiah showed us in this chapter? I think it's a key to us seeing revival happening amongst us. Let's continue the story. This is the, the next part of the story is, is, a, is the part that I, most of you have probably remember if you've ever heard the story of Josiah. Famous story about him uh, hearing the word of God and then repenting in a, in a very serious way. So let's read. This is uh, verse 14. So while they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he, gave, and he gives it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan takes the book to the king and reported to him, your officials are doing everything that you've committed to them. They're, they're repairing the temple. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan reads it, reads from it in the presence of the king. This is so significant. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hokiah, Ahakim, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Esaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant of Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. 
Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalem, son of Tokah, the son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. And this is what she says to them. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that have been read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all that their hands have made, my anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to acquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Verse 27, so significant. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place and on those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. I'm going to finish this chapter and it's going to talk about this kind of mini revival that happens amongst the people. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah in in Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites. And he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. It's a powerful story. So again, the recap. Josiah sends people, go repair the temple. And they find the book of the law. You know, I picture this Levite just stumbling across this scroll and and probably saying something like, I've heard about this thing before. But, you know, obviously in in the time of that, that Levite's life, they had not followed the Lord at all. So they didn't know what it was. And so they bring it to the king and they read it in his presence. And it's, um, isn't it amazing his response? It says he just tears his robes. I think it's, it dawns on him. He hears these words. And the, and the word of the law would have been either the, the first five books of the Bible or it could have been De- Deuteronomy only, which is kind of the, the law of Moses as he talked about, guys, these are the blessings that you're going to receive if you follow me. And these are the curses you're going to receive. And so Josiah hears these and, and I think he's overcome with, oh my gosh, we are about to be judged. We have absolutely disobeyed everything that God has said. And major judgment is coming. And so he, he goes to the prophetess and he says, what, what's going to happen? And she confirms that word. She says, God says that judgment is coming. But because you humbled yourself, because you wept in my presence, you will not see this judgment. I hear you. It says, I heard you because you humbled yourself. And then the mini revival that happened in Josiah's time, albeit a short one, because right after his death, they turned back. But the mini revival, all of Jerusalem again gathered around the temple and, and worshiping God, it said. 
And so, what do we learn from this? I think it's, you know, praise the Lord. I was, I was talking with Neil Crook earlier, and we were just talking about a lot of these stories kind of give you the moral, right? I think the moral is probably obvious. This whole book, this whole life is about humility, and, and it ties back to God saying, I want people who are humble. I work in people who humble themselves. I work in people who place me as the first part of their life and nothing else. I work in people who actually read the words that I've given you and, and, and believe them and live them. I was reading in CFTS, we're reading through Psalms right now. And just the other day, we read Psalm 10. And so, such a significant verse. It jumped out at me and says, Psalm 10 says, let me find it. In his pride, the wicked does not seek the Lord. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Those who are prideful have no room in their thoughts for God because it's all about themselves or it's all about other things. It's all about idolatry. It's all about elevation of of who we are. But those who are humble make room for God and that's the people that God works through. Just this past week, this power, um, it was, it was, uh, I went to this lecture with this group of pastors from New England. We, we went to MIT, and we met this professor of uh, effective com- computing. You know, what, tenured, brilliant, that's all you need to know. I don't even know what that means. She was telling me all about it, and I, I didn't understand it at all. But it was an encouraging talk, that's all. And this, this woman's doing amazing stuff in, in the science of epilepsy and, and, and uh, seizures and uh, depression and seeing how emotions are related to actually like our, you, you can identify emotions in, in your using computers before people even know what their emotions are. It's crazy. Anyway, the point of the story is she's brilliant. And for years, she was an atheist. And so we asked her at the end, we like, tell, me, tell us a little bit about your story. She, so again, this brilliant MIT professor staunch atheist. She had these friends who were believers and the friends would continually invite her to church. Come on, come to church, check it out. She's like, no, no, no. And so they're like, okay, how about reading the word of God? What if you read the Bible? And she's like, all right, fine, I'll do that. And so they recommend to her to read a particular book of the Bible. You know, typically when we, when we meet a non-believer, what are you telling people to read? John, right? Maybe Matthew, maybe Luke, you know, one of the gospels, get to Jesus, right? We think, they go, go to Proverbs. That's what, they, that's what these friends tell this woman. Go to Proverbs and read them. She reads Proverbs and she's overcome with the wisdom that's in this book. Overcome. She's like, here I am, you know, in, the, in this intellectual world and I'm reading this ancient book and I'm overcome with the wisdom that's in it. And so then she says, I got to read this thing. And so she reads the book and in her own words, she says, as she read the Bible, God spoke to her. And let, revealed himself to her through the word of God to this woman. And she became a believer. And now she's, she goes to Newton Presbyterian Church right down the road. She's an elder there. Active part of that church. Powerful, powerful testimony. And we asked her, we said, what, what do you recommend to us? What, do, what should we tell people? You know, as we preach, she goes, tell people to read the word of God and to believe it. Believe that it's an authoritative document. And that their lives will be changed because of it. And so I said, yes, praise the Lord. That's what I'm preaching on this week. (laughs) King Josiah believes that too. 
So guys, I just want to, I, I, I come with this simple message. As we look at the life of Josiah and we see this man who is humble, because of his humility, I think he was able to elevate God to the rightful place and, and purge all these other things. And then we see that when he read the word, humility was his response. And that is why it says, that is why God heard him. God was able to work through a man who is humble. You know, I believe that as we kind of begin to wrap up, I, I just think that I got to get to Jesus, you know, got to preach Jesus here. I believe that so many of these Old Testament stories, they're, they're actually, these projections are, are pointing us to truth. Capital T truth, Jesus. And what I see in the life of Josiah, I, th- I believe that the, the reason why it's in this book is that it's showing us one of the greatest attributes of who Jesus was. His humility. We see it all throughout Jesus' life. We see In the book of Philippians, Paul talking about Jesus, he says, Though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself. Jesus. John 13. Oh, what a powerful passage. He's with his disciples, the Lord of the universe, and he's starting to wash his disciples' feet. What humility. All throughout his ministry, continually deflecting any praise that came his way to the Father. Never self-promoting. Never pining for attention. That's our Jesus. That's our Lord and Savior. And so we must look at him and say, Jesus, you're our example. You know, if, if, if this message, you know, I, I say, how do we get humble? We look to the perfect example of humility. And we receive the grace that he has for us. If you are a believer, if you know Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, the grace of the Lord, I just picture it flooding over us. And it gives us the ability to be humble. It says in the Bible, those who are believers, we have the mind of Christ. It says that we are led by His Spirit. We live like He did. And by grace, we can be a people of humility if that's not our natural bent. And it's not. And the devil's trying to tell us not to be. But we look to Jesus and we say, thank you, Jesus, for the example of humility that you are. May I be like you. May I respond the way that you did. May I be like Josiah. So as the band comes up, I just want to enter into a time of response. You know, I was was thinking, why do we do this response thing? It's important. It's important to say, what is is the message that's that's touching you right now? I could have been, I'm not that great of a preacher. And I could have been the worst preacher ever, but there's something in this truth, at least from 2 Chronicles 34, that I pray is hitting you in in a real way. And that's what you need to respond to today. Two specific ways that we want to respond. I think that it's easy to say we, we desire revival. Of course, we want to be revived. We want to be renovated. We want to fall back in love with Jesus. We want to see the lost saved. We want that. But it must start here, now, today. It must start in our own hearts. And God says, these are the four conditions for revival. Humility. Seeking my face prayer and repentance and so today we talk about humility and so here's here's what i want to you guys to ask yourself i want everybody to ask yourself this right now this is going to be while the band is playing you're just going to ask yourself lord in in humility lord is there anything that i've elevated to your rightful spot in my life and just stop there maybe a simple question and see if if the lord reveals anything 
Is there anything that I've elevated to only your rightful place in my life? And then my challenge to you, if he brings up anything, is that this. In the next 24 hours, that you would bring that to someone else. You'd go, actually go speak with someone else. Confess it to them. And then come up with them. Talk with them about how do I purge this from my life? How do I get this other thing out of my life? I want to be a man or a woman of humility, having no other thing in, in your place, God. So you go confess it, and you talk with that person. How do I actually get this out of my life? How do I purge this? It's going to be different for every person. Second way that we respond is this. Is that some of you guys need to wake up tomorrow morning and begin to read the Word of God. Some of you guys, this isn't part of your daily routine. This isn't part of your daily life. And I, I, I submit to you and I ask and I implore of you right now that it will become a part of your daily routine. That you would actually read the authoritative Word of God. That you'd have the story that this, this woman... Rosalind Bacard had that when she read the book of Proverbs she was overcome with the wisdom that was in it and then some of you might read the Bible every day and my challenge for you is that you would forget the intellectual side I love the intellectual side we want to know the word of God absolutely but my challenge to you is for you to read it and say okay it's not just going to be more knowledge it's going to actually apply to my life and, and the challenge is to actually apply the word of God whatever you read is to apply it and say, how do I actually do this? So that's my challenge to us right now. And we're going to stand up. I'm also going to, I asked a few people to come up front, uh, a prayer team, and, and if there's any need, you know, regardless of what I just spoke about, if, if you're coming in with a huge burden in your life, come and get prayer for that. Whether it's a health thing, whether it's a finance thing, whether it's just your own life, or if this message is, is hitting somewhere that you just need to process with someone right now. Come and do that with these guys. Otherwise, ask the Lord, is there any idol? And then also ask the Lord what your perspective on the Word of God is. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing a few songs. Lord, thank you. We want to be like Jesus. The example, the perfect example of humility in our lives. We humble ourselves. We put you first. And we say, come blow in us, Lord. We want, we want to be revived. But it starts with humility. It starts with us creating room for you to actually move in our lives. So may we be a people that make room in our lives for you to move. In Jesus' name.